What's that place you've always wanted to try? Well, you're there. Sharing plates with just one bite. Or on second thought, maybe not sharing. It's that good. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that? Even designer furniture. On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, it's time for The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio. Now, here's your host, Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of The Bill Alexander Show with yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and I'm so glad to have you on the program today, listening to us or watching us, depending on how you're doing it. So glad you could be here. The lady I have on the program today, you may not really recognize the name, but you will recognize her if you've watched the Dirty Harry films, especially <laughs> The Enforcer. She is the second person you see in the movie. And I think the best line she says in the movie is not with you numb nuts, which I never thought <laughs> I would do it. <laughs> and with me right now, I have Jocelyn Jones. Jocelyn, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm very, I'm very well. Thank you. You just <laughs> broke me up with that. You know, I, I can tell you that briefly that, uh, we did have a be real for that. I think it was, you know, because they were kind of like, oh my goodness, can we say this? Yes. So um, there, I'm trying to think of what it was. Nowhere with you. I don't remember, but there was something softer than, than numb nuts. And <laughs> numb nuts was really unfortunate because I can tell you that I would go to the market. I had more than once go to the market and have somebody go, oh, oh, numb nuts. <laughs> <laughs> not my finest I, moment i um and and for people that have seen it uh, again i'm a, a clint eastwood fan is that i did not realize that was you until i scheduled this because i was going through stuff i'm going wait a minute i know her i've seen her i mean she has her hand in her back pocket in the beginning of the movie you can't miss who she is <laughs> and unfortunately you die within the first 20 minutes but you are a very uh, important character now. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go really off the subject here because about a few months ago, I had the opportunity to interview John Mitchum's daughter about oh. his career. And it was really interesting because we mentioned the Clint Eastwood stuff and everything else. How was it working with Clint? Did you really have any interaction with him or were you oh, off to the side? Yeah, no, he, he's fantastic. He, he's just fantastic. He's a uh, very hands-on. He's everybody loves him. His crew and cast, everybody is a family. Um, and Fargo, I can't remember his first name. Um, uh, something Fargo was the director. 
And not on this film, but there's, Clint is known, one of his directors started out bringing coffee, bringing coffee to the set. And he would move people up through the system into areas that they were good at, you know? And so people would cut their right arm off for him because he was so loyal and understanding of uh, letting people get ahead. I think it was Jim Fargo and I think it was his first film. So he was very big with that as well, making, you know, helping it be your first film. He, um, there, I, I will tell you, do you want a story about sure. booking that job? Um, I had just done the lead in a film called The Great Texas Dynamite Chase. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Uh, which was uh, originally called Dynamite Women, which I thought was, you know, maybe a better name. But uh, that was also a first film made for very, very low budget. Lots of people on that film went on to have big careers. And if you look at Thelma and Louise and you look at The Great Death yes. of Dynamite Chase, you would say, hmm, Thelma and Louise, a version of this mm-hmm. movie, which is pretty well loved. Well, in Hollywood, just for any actors out there who might be listening, you never know who is looking at your work. And one day I got a call from my agent who said, you know, Clint Eastwood saw the great Texas Dynamite Chase and he loves your movie and he wants to have you in for it was actually Tyne Daly's part. She plays the lead in the movie. Yes. He wants to have you come in and read for Tyne Daly's part, not Tyne Daly's part, but that part, his partner. And I went, oh, oh, goodness. Okay, great, great, great. So, you know, I went in and I met everybody and uh, I was too young and too ingenue and probably too a little too hot for that particular part. Uh, So, but he wanted me in the film because he's that way. He liked the film. He understood we'd made this, you know, low budget film and it was so much fun. You know, people love that film and he loved it. And so he wanted, he said, "I, I want her in the movie. So they created that part. Now, evidently, one of the things he liked best or liked best was the cutoff shorts I wore in Great Texas Dynamite Chase. And so when I went to wardrobe the job, she pulled out these cutoff shorts and I said, "Uh, no, please. I with the cutoff shorts, you know, I spent a whole movie in cutoff shorts. I don't want I have a thing about my behind. I'm kind of self-conscious. And she goes, oh, well, you know, it was requested. So we're going to go real (laughs) seriously. And she said, yeah, yeah, we got it. We got to show Clint the wardrobe. And, you know, he requested this. Okay. And I started to cry because I was so self-conscious. I mean, I would kill to have that behind now, but. Well, I was going to say, you really had nothing to worry about, uh, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) So she said, look, I'll pull it out. It'll be a little bit larger. We'll cut fringe. We'll do, you know, shading, makeup, whatever. And this is all for naught. I weighed three, two pounds, you know. So uh, so we put the cutoff shorts, they're a larger size, they've got the fringe, Clint comes in, he looks at all of the wardrobe, you know, he looks at the cutoff shorts, he says, turn around, because he knows he's going to open that movie right. on my behind, I don't, yeah. and he says, turn around, and I turn around, and he goes, yeah, those are great, uh, yeah. and then he turns to her and he goes, one size smaller, please. <laughs> oh, it was funny, so anyway, that was the opening of the picture um so the great texas dynamite chase i would actually classify that as something as you said it was a b picture that were being played at drive-ins usually the second feature 
and you did another one like that also did you that was a, another i did i did <laughs> i did sort of embarrassed to say i did another one like that called tourist trap which was yes. a horror movie which is my least favorite genre of all films so making one was like oh my goodness but uh it was a lot of fun in the end it was a lot of fun and chuck connors you know played opposite yeah. chuck and and he was lovely. He was really lovely and very supportive of me. It was also the director's first time. I worked with a lot oh. of first time directors. Yeah. Yeah. So and also when you look at when you look at your your resume, you did a lot of TV appearances um, from Marcus Welby to Cannon to Cagney and Lacey and stuff like that. Were you looking at getting into TV or was it just something to pay the bills before you got into movies? You know, uh, it start, I started in television because I had a few contacts there and you have to cut your teeth somewhere. Um, but my uh, luck was really in film and theater. I loved theater. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't do as much theater as I would have liked to. But pretty early on, I discovered that, uh, you know, I was a teacher. I, I love acting, but I didn't love the life. I didn't love the auditioning process it's even harder now it's just really really hard on actors and you know you spend your day out and auditioning and crossing your fingers and you know preparing really prepare i mean i was a trained actor so i would prepare each audition you know that's four six eight hours of preparation then you don't get it then you're on to the next so it's kind of like uh, the Las Vegas of art, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you put all this work in and, and it's just a crapshoot whether you're going to you're going to get the part or not. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually am familiar with that because my son is an actor. He just graduated with his musical theater degree and he's been doing the auditions and it's yeah. like, OK, you get yourself hyped up. I did really well. I'm going to get the phone call. Then you get the phone call and it's not what you wanted and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I I've lived on the other side of that as a parent to yes. be able to uh, to relate it, to that. So it's um, hard, but it, he's it he's in a beautiful field. I mean, if I had it over to do, I did one musical, I did Three Penny Opera and I loved it so much. Um, and if I had it to do again, I would have just gone in. Musical theater is just plain fun. And mm -hmm. usually you can book a job in some, I mean, right now theater is oh, yeah. a little wonky, you know, but usually you can book a job on a tour, summer theater, regional theater, um, and just have for the love of it, you know, you'll make a little money. Nobody ever made a lot of money in theater. You make no. a little money uh, and you'll have, you know, my dad started out in, in the theater and so, I've been going to the theater since I was four years old, and it, it, I just love it. Well, I'm glad you brought up your dad, who is Henry Jones, which yeah. a lot of people may not know his name, but they know him to see him. When I realized who your father was, I'm going, that's the judge from Phyllis. I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which was a very odd concept for a spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. <laughs> which didn't you move in with your 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 late husband's mother who has remarried to someone else and you're living with them which made no sense to me whatsoever but that was the premise of the program yeah it was it was a little odd yeah henry you know i grew up i grew up around a lot of artists but it began with uh with the uh, actors because my dad was in the theater 
So it, we started out in New Hope, Pennsylvania, and uh, my dad was working at the Bucks County Playhouse. Now, the Bucks County Playhouse in the 50s was unbelievable. I mean, Grace, every, the, 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 you know, Groucho Marx, all of those people. I mean, I, if I had been a little more prepared to talk about it, I would have all the names of the people who worked at the Bucks County Playhouse, but they were everybody in the theater community. And it was because in the summer, the Broadway houses had no um, air conditioning. So oh. they had to go outside to the country. And the Bucks County Playhouse, sometimes they opened the back doors and, you know, windows and, you know, they do summer theater. So everybody from Broadway, they just all chose the Bucks County Playhouse and decided to do do it there. Um, so there was it, it was quite quite an array of folks. And then he, you know, he was doing more and more Broadway shows and he was commuting four hours, two hours into town, two hours back out to the country. So we moved uh, to New York. And then also in the late 50s, you know, television exploded and Hollywood had movie stars, but they didn't have all the other parts that you needed mm. for this explosion of television. So they brought people out from New York, from the Broadway stage. And, you know, it was a smaller town then and they all knew each other. And they used to stay at the Montecito Hotel in Hollywood. There was a little hotel there called the Montecito. And they all stayed in the same hotel. And they all went out to dinner together and they were all in these different shows and they just work all the time. I just realized looking through the list of names, uh, the programs that your dad was on, that if I ever play six degrees of separation again, I win because, <laughs> <laughs> because he worked in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He was the bicycle salesman. Yeah. Um, he did he did a lot of films, 310 to Yuma. Um, yeah. and the craft theater, he did, uh, let's see the real McCoys. He did, uh, the investigators, these pro Al Alfred Hitchcock presents, he did all of these. And yet he really isn't known other than people in the field. Did he want to be a big star or was he just happy who he was? Every actor wants to be a big star. And if you're a character actor, you want to be Walter Matthau. But okay. everybody can't be Walter Matthau, you know what I mean? So I, I, every actor wants to be a big star. I think that he was sorry that he never, you know, also Tommy Yule, you know, he was compared to Tommy Yule. I, I feel a little guilty just mentioning Tommy Yule's name. You know, he was seven year itch with Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. Tommy Yule and Henry were very much alike and Tommy Yule's career kind of took off. And, uh, at one point, Henry did something and, and uh, he, all the reviews mentioned Tommy Yule and Tommy sent him a telegram saying, thanks for the great reviews. Henry. <laughs> you know, so it was a little crazy, but his big, you know, he did the bad seed and oh, yeah. he played Leroy in the bad seed. And he was the most known for that on stage. And then, you know, he, he won a couple of Tonys as well, but the bad seed really was his big thing that people were like, oh, my God, that's that guy from the bad seed. And I wasn't allowed to watch it because I was the same age as Patty oh, McCormick. Okay. And it was just a little creepy. And there was lots of things I couldn't watch because Alfred Hitchcock loved Henry mm -hmm. and he did a number of Hitchcock presents. And uh he he always played the guy who killed his wife and sealed her in, you know, he'd be a taxidermist and mm -hmm. he'd kill his wife and seal her in a horse. 
you know, it's typical, you know, uh, Hitchcock. Um, so that was really, he, he was the guy you go to the restaurant and everybody would go, Oh my God, that guy, that guy, his face mm-hmm. was, you know, he, he, I think he did I, between four and 600 television shows I, and a ton so, of film, you know? Yeah. It's amazing looking at the list and there's one that the, he, he played, he played in that the movie got panned when it came out because it did, for some reason, this idea of taking a comic strip and making it into a movie was something yeah. very new at the time. And that was Dick Tracy. And your dad yeah. played the night clerk, which again, if I think the movie was underrated, I love that film. And I think it is a very good film. And just with the actors that he was in it, because they were big names in that film. Yeah. So with yeah, he Beatty. played. Yeah, he yeah. always, but they loved Henry. They would give him, you know, Jim Garner loved Henry. He would create parts for Henry. Um, arachnophobia, you know, he always yeah. was like, let's give, let's have Henry do this. Let's have, because mm-hmm. he was also a really, really charming, wonderful, you know, old school Broadway actor and, uh, you know, wore bow tie, that kind of guy, well, you know. He looks to me like the grandfather that everybody would want because when he went with the with the older roles that he played and last week i talked to eileen graff who worked with him and mr belvedere on yeah. uh, the one episode and just talking about these people and working with them that just had to be that just had to be a, amazing now with the um phyllis where he did have a weekly program and that didn't last as long as it probably could have did he ever think that he would want another tv series that he would be able to have a long run in you know every actor wants to be a movie star and every Mm -hmm. actor wants to have a long-running series that's just you know a given um he did several series i know he did one called channing he did several but they just didn't catch and Sometimes that's the luck of the draw. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like you know he wasn't loved in Hollywood and hired right. and pilots. You know, it's just a matter of right time, right place, right part, all coming together. You know, uh, I think the closest was really Hitchcock because Hitch loved him and he did mm-hmm. so many of those early Hitchcock presents. Um, there's a story in the book I tell about. Uh, about going to Chasen's to a birthday party for Hitchcock with my dad. And uh, it, it was astounding because you would go in those days, you would go and there'd be like a red carpet and Hitch would be there. And then there would be a guy next to him whose job was to know who you were and what you'd done. And he would whisper it in Hitchcock's ear, which I didn't really see. My dad told me later, right. remember the guy, you know, I didn't really see it, but that was his job. So we didn't have to do that for my dad, of course, because he knew my dad so well. But when I, you know, was presented to Hitchcock, he was like Miss Jones. And then he mentioned, you know, at the Great Texas Dynamite Chase, I think it was just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Then we went in and, you know, I'm somebody who's a little uh, flighty in crowds. I get a little nervous. And Chasen's was wall to wall. And it was wall-to-wall movie stars. And you, uh-huh. everywhere you looked, it was like, oh, my God, that person. And, oh, my God, that person. And uh, I started to get a little bleary. And 
then at one point, my father introduced me to Cary Grant. Oh. And I tell you, uh, later in my life, you know, I've become a, a coach to a lot of movie stars and I'm not starstruck easily, mm-hmm. but Cary Grant, I, I just swooned. I just swooned. I mean, I was like, oh my God. And you know, he said, hello, Jocelyn. It was more <laughs> syllables in my name than I've ever heard in my life. And I was just like, hello. What do we eat for breakfast? <laughs> yeah. Just, what do you could, What do you say he, to Cary Grant? He could He could read the phone book and make it enjoyable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I I I'm going through your dad's list, and I forgot he was in the movie Nine to Five with yes. uh, Dolly Parton, yeah. Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda, and they're talking about a reboot of this film. Do you think they should reboot it or just stick with the original? You know, I pretty much watch Dolly Parton do anything. Um, I just love her to pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just watched a documentary about her. And, you know, it's funny because she has, she is Dolly Parton. And yet she's an incredibly authentic human being, mm-hmm. I think. An incredibly authentic performer. You know, she had a vision and she, kind of like Marilyn Monroe, she had a very specific vision and she went to that vision and it was her creation. But, you know, nine to five is about working women. And uh, these women are, are on the other side of the big working career. So I, I don't know. Maybe it would be nine to five, something else. I don't know. Right. But, you know, Frankie and Grace and Frankie is wonderful. And I'm all for parts for the wise because, you know, uh, women of that age are carrying the wisdom of the world. And so any way that we can open up opportunities for them to share that and open up opportunities for young people to learn to respect uh, the wisdom of their elders is, is I, I look forward to. So when you talk about that, and I've talked to, like I said, Eileen Graff, I talked to uh, Michael Leonard and a handful of other female actresses that are over, they worked in the seventies. I, there's no way I could say it properly without being without uh, being rude and i don't want to do that but they're older actresses and they're saying that that they want to be able to come back and they want to be able to work again michael lerner just got a a part on a netflix series playing the uh, grandmother of uh why can't i think of the guy's name he's a serial killer but he's she's playing the grandmother she said it's a role that you would never see me play but they asked me to do it and i jumped at it yeah why aren't we seeing more roles for older individuals, especially uh, female actresses? Well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to just segue a little bit into the book here. Um, OK, please. Do. And please gonna, mention the title of your book. Oh, it's called Artist uh, Awakening the Spirit Within. I'm going to show a picture in case anybody's watching. There's the picture uh, of it. Um, it's. You know, I opened this book, I wrote this book because I think we're in trouble. I think we're in a little bit of trouble. I think, you know, we have a worship. We've been, you know, bowing to the wrong altars. Youth, Youth and youth and youth and staying young and making yourself young and wearing young clothes and youth and youth. And then the noise of youth, you know, AI. Instagram and Facebook and games and we are our youth is distracted they're not being educated 
we, we've kind of taken out the educational system in this country. Uh, mm-hmm. We've done some real damage there, which is why, you know, we're having some political problems because people have not even been educated as to what government is. It used to be right. part of all cultures. Like, you know, what is your government here in the United mm-hmm. States? So it's, it's a, all of a, you know, a ball of wax where we're listening to the wrong thing. We're not in balance. We're not in balance and we're not connected to ourselves. When we're connected to ourselves, we're connected to the whole family unit. So we respect our grandparents, we respect our parents, and we respect our own inner voice and what's true for us. So the reason that we don't have uh, more roles for older women is because it doesn't sell. We're being run by corporations, you know. I keep saying, you know, I think when we look back at this time in history, we will call it corporate terrorism. Oh, okay. Because they're running the show. It's Mm -hmm. not even that young people sell. It's that corporations think that young youth sells. So they're going to, and it's a, you know, it's a circle, you know, they make the product for the youth. The youth watches it. They say youth sells. If they made the product for older people, I mean, Gracie, Frankie and Gracie is a huge, huge, huge success. You have equally as large uh, an audience of elderly people, elderly people, what are, you know, people over 60. Um, and, and they're intelligent and they want their own programming. But, you know, corporations are not going to make that programming because they don't even want to look at older people. What I think is interesting is when you talk about older people and about the marketing, because working in radio and television, we saw the same thing. They went younger, 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 yeah. younger, younger doesn't have the money all the time. Yeah. It's always the people probably over the age of 50 whose kids are grown up. They're out of the house and have the disposable income to be able to in go have a night on the town or be able to have uh um, money that they can spend on whatever it may be, but they're still focusing on the young. However, I'm starting to notice a slight shift, not much, but a slight shift when it comes to TV commercials with higher end vehicles that they're going to an older audience. But overall, you're not seeing it. Do you think the streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime is helping that because now independent projects can be made with a variety of casts and not really worried about because there's such a segmented audience? It's a slow drive always. I think it starts with responsibility. You know, you have to have a vision, a responsible vision, which means like take theater. Okay. Musicals sell revivals of musicals sell. Do we have to have, you know, that's like eating, having your diet be 90% candy, you know? Right. So there's a, there's a responsibility to create and offer theater because, you know, the arts is where we advance humanity. It's only ever been the artists who put out new forms that we reach toward. Now corporate is making that harder. They don't want to listen to the artists, you know, and all artists will tell you this. But then there are shifts, there are natural shifts. So now there's a natural shift for more equality in casting. 
And so if you're a young African-American, I wish Asian was a little better than it is, but if you're a young filmmaker of color, now is the time to really push the boundaries. And that's a very good thing, you know? I have a student, very ambitious, very talented, beautiful student, actress, writer, uh, director, and her career has taken off because she's ambitious and she stepped in and she keeps a cheery attitude and a positive attitude and loves art and is standing for what artists should stand for, which is I'm going to open this door wider. I'm going to make room here for some more, you know, soulful, intelligent, you know, educational all of these can be part of art, you know, rather than a 90% candy, you know, the Kardashians, this is not a diet of, of something that people want to emulate, and yet young people are emulating it. So we have a lot of little shifts and corrections we need to make. I mean, really, Bill, it's right down to, you know, young people are being educated to sex by pornography, because it's just so available so there's this these shifts need to take place and they're going to take place by people you know taking some responsibility people in the industry taking a little more responsibility in their leadership we have noticed across the country of course the first thing that gets cut in school budgets is the arts yes it's theater yes how do you feel that's going to affect the next generation because we're removing these because and i've argued this in my kids schools and everything else i said these kids are going to be able to participate in the arts they view the arts they do all this and this is what they do in their leisure time this is what they do to relax this is how they cope with things but yet we're taking it away and they're not learning how to create all we're doing is teaching a test and they're learning how to do certain things. Not everybody's going to be an architect. Not everybody's going to be um, an English professor. We have these kids and arts is a lot of the times their escape from music to acting to whatever it may be. And we're seeing it being removed. Do you think that has uh, uh, affected the shifts that you're talking about? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at, at, the leadership today, uh, it, it's, it's sad. We, we are not building leaders for tomorrow. And you build leaders for tomorrow with imagination. And this mm-hmm. is what the, I mean, I'm not just plugging my book, but it is what the book is about. So I, I, it actually has exercises to help people. It's not that the arts should be there for their leisure time. I mean, that's very good and nice for their leisure time. But the importance of the arts is that it builds imagination. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that builds imagination. The reason it's more important to read a book than to watch a film is watching a film is passive. All the pictures are delivered to you. But if you read a book, you have to make the movie in your head. You read these words and you make pictures. That's why we have a problem with illiteracy. It's because they're being delivered pictures all over the place and they don't want to go to the trouble of making pictures in their head but the beauty of it and you know in education you just have to tell them that they go oh okay and let me read you a story you know Mm -hmm. my daughter went to a a rudolf steiner school and the rudolf steiner school is is all about teaching through the arts and because of the empowerment uh, the empowerment of imagination and in kindergarten 
they tell stories. And the further into the kindergarten year, the longer the stories get, the longer and longer and longer. Why? Because it's training them to make pictures in their own head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you read a book, I read a book, we make two different movies. It's beautiful. To, if you look at society today and you look at the anger and you look at the diversity, the, the, what is it called? Diverse, not diversity, divisiveness. Right. It's because of the lack of arts. It's because of the lack of imagination. One side can't imagine what's going on with the other side, can't imagine mm-hmm. what's going but, on with this side. We're all locked down into being right. Everybody wants yeah. to be right. When you want to be right, you're not, you have no space for anything to come in. So when you take out the arts from education, you take out imagination. When you take out imagination, you take out leadership, you take out growth, you take out evolution, you take out, you know, it's terrible. It's like imprisoning somebody to take away their imagination. I've said whenever they, they introduced uh, No Child Left Behind in the early 2000s, I said they were going into the elementary schools and putting a vacuum cleaner up to a fifth grader's ear and sucking out all the imagination because we weren't letting them imagine. And you ask a kid, they, you, you ask them what they're going to do or ask them what a consequence would be if they got in trouble. They can't imagine it because no. it's like that's why we have so much problems in this country, because these kids aren't able to think about what the consequence or what the success may be after they go through it, because they're always worried about now. They're not worried about anything else. Right. And that's and right. that's really scary to me. And I don't want to bring up the situation that happened yesterday. But again, why would someone do that? If you're having frustrations or problems, go find someone to talk to. Don't do this to yeah. make this. This is going to make everything better. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, you know, it's a, pro, it's a real serious problem. We're going to have to look at our values as a country. And, and you know, this is really why I wrote the book. It, it's so simple. It's all, it's always so simple. It's lies are very, you know, complex, but the truth is very simple. Do you know how to educate a child? Ask them questions and listen to them. Start with the question. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Give them choices. Then, you know, congratulate them on their choices and follow their interests one of the things I want to do with the book, because, you know, my father, let me tell you, my father asked me, I was a, I was a very troubled teenager. I, I got in a lot of trouble. I, I was angry and I was acting out and I got thrown out of a lot of schools. And I talk about this in the book because these are the things that gave me the life lessons that I then passed on to my acting students that I then fashioned into the same exercises that you can use to create a life of your own dreams. But first you have to dream. First you have to give yourself the space to say, so I was in a lot of trouble and my mother, you know, I got thrown out of the school and my mother sent me to live with my dad in California. And I didn't know my dad very well because he was an actor and he was in, you know, theater. And so he slept all day and then he'd get up and go to the theater. And and then I wasn't allowed to watch him on television because he played these scary characters. And Mm -hmm. then he went to California. So I didn't, he was kind of formal. I didn't know him very well. But now I land on his doorstep as a troubled 13-year-old, right? And he really rose to the occasion. 
And I remember, because I asked this in the book all the time, he asked me the most important question of my life. He said, Jossie, at 13 and acting out and feeling nobody was listening to me and I hated all teachers. He said, if you could have anything in the world, barring all obstacles, what would that be? And I, of course, said, well, I, I want to live with you here at the beach and go to public school. And he said, okay, well, we can't do that. You know, what else? But that question, because I had to go to boarding school because he was going on locations and stuff. But, and also I think he was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do with this 13-year-old? But that question returned in my life many times. And I still use it, you know, in certain, you know, I'm going in a certain direction. I go, okay, if you could have this go in any direction you wanted, barring all obstacles, what would that be? Because the truth of the matter is, and what should be being done in education is anything is possible. Anything is possible in your life. First, you have to define what it is. And if you can't imagine, if you're not given the space, which is in the book, I'm always talking about how do you create the space to imagine? How do you create that safe space to imagine what you're here for a reason? You have a purpose that deserves and needs to be supported. And if nobody else is going to do it, you need to do it. Mm -hmm. You need to ask yourself the questions. You need to still yourself, turn off all the AI and all the electronics and get in communication with yourself and say, what do I want to do with this life? Because there is an artist in everyone. There is an artist in everyone because your first work of art is your life. Mm -hmm. You're creating your own life, whether you are aware of it and contributing or not. You mentioned um, the Kardashians and what we're seeing on reality television. Why do you think, and I know money has a lot to do with it, we're not seeing well-scripted programs like we did 20 years ago. Why are we seeing all this based in reality programming? And I know, like I said, it's because it's cheap or is it because everybody wants to look into everybody else's life to see what they're doing? You know, Bill, it's like a car accident. You know, we can't, we can't for some reason, we can't take our eyes off of it. We have a base nature. We have a base nature. So when I talk about corporate terrorism, I'm talking about corporate taking advantage of our base nature. What is our base nature? Pornography is a perfect example. It's a billion, trillion dollar you know, industry. Okay, freedom of speech. But could we have even 5% of the opposite? When was the last time you saw a film with sex in a beautiful way, mm -hmm. in a loving way, in a, so that young people can look and say, right. oh, you know? Uh, if you talk to young people, they'll tell you crazy stuff. They'll, they'll say, oh, I, I learned sex from pornography, so I thought I was supposed to like to be smacked. You yeah. know, it, it's not, it's really sad. Same thing with the Kardashians. You know, really, you know, wear those clothes. You're going to, it's not, it's, you know, we're just off kilter. I don't like to be judgmental. I don't want to be judgmental about it, but corporate is playing into our base nature and our base nature is a little cheap here and there, you know, and, it, and that will always be, but that's why we have the arts. We have the arts right. to inspire us to our higher self. A and that's what this book is about. 
So let, let's move into something a little bit more positive and talk about your studio, your teaching. So how long have you been teaching acting? Okay, well, I, I taught acting. I'm currently not teaching because I'm promoting okay. this and I'm promoting the, um, but it's the first time in 30 years. So I've taught for 30 years. Um, what happened was, you know, we started as an actress and then I got pregnant and I had a daughter and I had such a good time being a mother and I thought teaching and, and I always knew I would teach. And I always knew I would teach Bill because I was raised around extraordinary uh, artists. After my mm -hmm. dad and my mom split up, my mom married a gentleman who was a writer and he was connected to the art world. And so at our dining room table growing up were the greatest painters of the 70s, the greatest dancers. Oh, wow. You know, it, it was qu quite a crowd. Um, and I was young and I was studying them. You know, I would just look and I, what I was interested in, which took me years to figure out, but it was in inspiration. What, what made them, you know, when they were working, when they were working on a painting, they were like, beside themselves they were they were uplifted they were in another place and when they were out of work just like actors they were kind of caved and they didn't have that inspiration feeding them mm -hmm. so my life really became about tracking that inspiration and could you get it at will and did they have a, a, an aware connection with it or did they just wait for it to come around or did they do certain things in a row and then the inspiration came you know what was the nature of that and so being an actor and being around actors and understanding intellectually the technique of acting, that it was really about inspiration. You give an actor tools, right? Like anybody, you want to become a potter, you get these tools, you throw pots, you become a potter. You want to become a singer or a dancer. You go through technique to get the strength. But when does it lift into inspiration? What, what becomes artful about it? When does that happen? And that happens when there's a personal connection. So the dancer understands now the choreography and the story of the ballet in a certain way, in a personal way, and they kind of leave the technique. The technique is right underneath them. But they leave the technique and they enter this realm of, of uh, inspiration. And we know it. You know it when you've seen it in the theater. Not often, but when you see it, you leave your seat and enter the right. story with them. Right. You know, you're like, and you come out of it going, wow, I left, you know, there for a while. So that was my interest in teaching. I was very good with technique, but I really was always after lifting them. How do, how do they connect to it personally? And um, that led to, you know, I got a certain reputation and movie stars started reaching out and I started working with some outer stratospheric movie stars, which was interesting because they're not trained and they're embarrassed that they're not trained. Really? Yeah. For the most part, they're not. I trained. didn't realize that. Yeah. No, they're not trained because the training is like in the theater and stuff. And right. Right. You know, mostly television and film. They're very often they're not trained and they're embarrassed and they think they're missing something. But most importantly, they feel like they have to reinvent the wheel with every film. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I would do is go in and show them what they were doing right. 
So I would say this, these are all the things you're doing right. Look, let's look here. You know, you have this wonderful career. You must be doing something right. So I would list out all the things and show them what they were doing right. So I'd say this, you rely on this. You do this every single film. Look, you did it here, you did it here, you did it here. This relaxes them because they go, oh, I do have some technique. Technique gives you security, you know, that you can take that leap. So, um, and then I would just, you know, I would work the film as if I were playing the part, whether it was a man or a woman, it didn't matter, right. you know, and I would give them the choices and inspire them to ideas. And the better I got to know them, the more I knew, oh, they'll dig this part or they'll love this part. And, you know, I created books, all kinds of books, and I'd work three, four months with them before they start shooting to develop a, a character. And that led to script doctoring. So, I, and all of this is like very, you know, I had to sign confidentiality agreements so I can right, talk about who or what projects, but that led to script doctoring, which I loved because even with just the actor, I would take the script and what's called board it. Actually, I can, I can see you behind me is a board. Yes, uh, I see This it. is actually my husband's office. I have a board in my office, but this is my husband's office and he's a writer as well. And that's a board. So you take, you can either build a script on a board, the card by card, scene by scene, um, and you structure it, you know, first act 30 pages, second act 60 mm -hmm. pages, you know. So structure equals freedom. And then you just write the name of the scene, you know, just a little description of the scene. So, and I would do this for actors so I could walk the board and look at the development of the character. And most of the time the character was not developed. So I would give them all kinds of ideas about, how to develop the character. What if he started out in worse shape so that he can end up in better shape and he would have taken this hero's journey right. and we would be able to track that. Um, so that led to script doctrine and that led to writing and there you go. Did I answer that question? Yes, you did. <laughs> my, my son and I have been having this discussion um, recently that I'm in my mid fifties and I, pretty much know uh, you could say pop culture, but you can go back into the 1930s and forties. And I pretty much know it because my career in radio, I had to uh, because of the music I played and understand the time period. Cause I played big band music years ago and I was at a play that he was in. I was at, at the, the drowsy chaperone that was mm -hmm. done and I'm watching it. And I'm going, there are so many inconsistency because they didn't know the time period or what was going on in the time period that the musical was based. And it's so frustrating when you see it's based in the mid seventies or early seventies, and you see a turntable sitting on a stand that <laughs> looks like a turntable that came out of the 1950s. No, yeah. you, you don't do that. Yeah. And it's just so interesting to to watch this. And the more and the older I get, the more inconsistencies I notice that they're thinking the audience isn't intelligent enough to know what was going on during that time frame. Well, I don't even think it's is, is they don't think that audience is intelligent enough. I think it's a lack of research and, again, education in theater like set that's just set decorating you know that's just a set or the director insisting right. that you know the director has to insist no you can't have that turntable 
I just saw American Buffalo. I went back to the theater after two and a half years. It was a little scary. It's a double mask. And uh, we sat front row center to see American Buffalo with that incredible cast. But the set dressing alone is not to be believed. You know, it's a, it's really? a pawn shop and uh, it, every single item is. And that's the difference between inspired, because that's an inspired set, American Buffalo, and just not being educated as to what the job is. Or, and forget even not being educated as to what the job is, not being educated as to what the fun is. Imagine if you were directing that and you looked at the set with your, you know, knowledge of that time period, you were going, it wouldn't be about, we need to have, it would be about, you know, we could have, have. or we could, oh, this would be cool. We could have, you know, and that's what we need to get back to. And uh, yeah. My my son was played Sonny Malone in Xanadu, which I never thought I'd see my kids sing and roll be on roller skates at the same time. And he came, he literally came to me and said, Okay, Dad, what was it like growing up in the late 70s, early 80s? And I said, How much time do you have? And I said, Let's listen to the music. Let's listen mm-hmm. to the disco era. Let's listen to it and let me explain it. Three years before, he played Kanicki in Greece. Same thing. Yeah. And if I have a picture of Fabian behind me right here. But again, going back through that whole thing, getting to understand just the time period, I think would help an actor or actress understand what was going on, even in the political culture, what was going on in the 1950s, what was going on in the 1970s. It may not be related but at least it gives them an understanding of what culture was going through at the time. Yeah. Well, here's a beautiful marriage that we have with technology and inspiration. We have the greatest research tools at our fingertips than we've ever had. And research is a road to inspiration. Mm -hmm. So when you just begin the research of what music you can even go, you know, your birthday in 19, because so, I'm always saying make it personal. So if you were this age in, in 1970, when would oh, you yeah. have been born? So on your birthday, your 12th birthday on 1970, what was the music? And then you are in it at 12 years old. You know, it's always that personal hook into it. But that's a beautiful research project. And what would they be reading? I worked on... Um, I worked on a film. I can kind of talk about it because, uh, oh, I can talk about it because I was actually uh, uh, billed. Uh, actually, with, okay, so I worked for Forrest Whitaker on the Butler, I was just, and I was and ask he you about gave that. him a credit, which was, you know, I've done all this work for all kinds of people and a lot of work for Forrest as well, and so it was very kind of him to give me that credit. Uh, you know, I don't know that I was a dramaturge on the picture, but one of the things I did was a lot of research for him. And uh, it was wonderful because his, you know, he has a child that, you know, grows up and it becomes very rebellious and Black Panthers and involved in that whole Black movement. And he is, you know, had been through seven presidents and, you know, Mm -hmm. grown up in an entirely different period of time. And so I literally did things like what news, what would you be reading in the news in this a period of time with this president. So each president 
I would do certain things like here's what was going on in the news. Here are articles of the time that he read, you know, uh, it was fascinating. And then here's what his son is reading and here's his son's point of view. And what is his point of view about his son's point of view? And in this way, you make things very, very personal. So research is just the cornerstone to inspiration. And, uh, you know, I, I found photographs, hangings and things, and I would just put them in his book. So when he went to play a scene, he would, you know, go and then there would be the reason, say, don't look at this until the day, you know, and then he'd right. go and he'd look at it. And I would say, this would be like if this morning you read this in the news and now you have to go to work and play the scene. Mm -hmm. because in acting you always want this you want what's underneath right like, this is not in the script that so happens that the morning that morning he read this in the news and now he has to go play this scene with the president and nobody right. knows that he read you know what i'm saying so that's the kind of thing that you teach actors to do but all of that comes out of research yeah, and, and to me that is just amazing but unfortunately i don't see a lot of that in today's films it's like, how fast can we make them? How much money can we make? And when can we make the next one to boot off of that? And is it because, again, with the corporations or are we just lazy? Well, I don't know that we're lazy. I don't really believe in lazy. We're uninspired for sure. Okay. And one of the reasons we're uninspired is because, you know, it's not valued. So you knock at the door and nobody answers long enough, you know, it goes away. So uh, the sad part is I think, you know, artists knock at the door. It, you know, isn't answered. They have inspired projects. It isn't answered. They go away. Now they don't believe in their project. So now they're not knocking at the door for some other inspiration. Um, it, it's very difficult at this time because, you know, joy and creativity go hand in hand. And it's a very difficult time to stay joyous. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have a whole chapter in the book about how important it is to take care of your own um, joy, you know, your own tone level, your own vibration. Because if you read the news too much, you can't oh, even walk out crazy. the door. It, it yeah. just, it, it's so depressing and so uh, damaging to the spirit, you know, really. So um, it's very important to keep your tone up and, and because we're going to all walk through this one way or another together. And those, maybe we don't have the biggest inspiration in the arts now, but we have people who are really trying to inspire us to stay positive as a group and learn. Always we've learned from the difficult, you know, what is the answer to move beyond it? Um, and that and that's really where where we are right now. And the inspiration will come back. It always has, you know, and, and people need it. People need it right now. But my point is we have to do that for ourselves mm. one at a time. Each and every one of us take a moment, be still, have know what meditation is, know what it is to create a space where you can have a conversation with yourself about how you can contribute really. Well, Jocelyn, I think that's a perfect place to end. That was wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thank okay. you very much for joining to me, joining me today. Good luck on the book. Good luck on the uh, doc the documentary that's going that's. Uh, being we have done a right now. We have a documentary coming up. It, you know, it just got picture locked, so it's in post production. We should have more news in about three months. 
Oh, I'd love to have you back on again so we can talk about it. Thank you so much. It was really, really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Hey, a big thank you goes out to Jocelyn Jones for joining me today. I really appreciate it. So nice to be able to talk to her about her dad's career, her career, her acting studio, and her new book. And uh, we will have her back on again when the documentary comes out. So guys, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for watching this edition of The Bill Alexander Show. Thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to thebillalexandershow.com. Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.